about context being in or out. The question is what the relevant context is. How concepts and theories are created within specific contexts. Ceteris non paribus, meaning all other things not being equal. Welcome to Ceteris non paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Christina Lascaridis, and for this episode, Ceteris non paribus will be airing a recording of a seminar from November 2017 that Stephen Medema, Distinguished Professor of Economics at the University of Colorado Denver, gave on externalities in economic analysis. Through hearing the presentation of the paper, Exceptional and Unimportant, the rise, fall and rebirth of externalities in economic analysis, we get a rich insight into Professor Medema's extensive work on the history of 20th century economics, in particular the origins, diffusion and controversies over the Coase theorem in economics, law and beyond. The paper can be found on our website, ceterisnonparibus.net, which we encourage you to visit to find us and spread the word on social media. You can sign up for notifications and follow us on Twitter at ceterisnparibus. On our website, you can also find more information about the historical and philosophical perspectives on economics seminar series organised by PhD students at the LSE's Economic History Department, which hosted Professor Medema in November last year. We are very excited to share yet another interesting talk with you, and we hope you enjoy it. This paper derives from a much larger, very long project on the history of the Coase theorem uh, in economics, sort of a biography of the theorem. I actually several years ago presented another paper related to this project in this in this very seminar. And this particular paper came about when I decided that I needed to write a chapter for the book on the, that I'm, I'm writing on the theorem on the history of externality analysis prior to Coase, um, particularly in that era between, you know, set the stage with Pigou, uh and then bring the story up to Coase, um, something that my book, The Hesitant Hand, doesn't really do. Um, and the, the Hesitant Hand is sort of a partial history of market failure theory, but it leaps very quickly from Pigou to, to, to the Coase slash public choice stuff um, with a nice little, I don't know what it is, two-page two treatment of the Pigovian tradition and how in between Pigou and Coase, you know, this Pigovian tradition was established, everybody buys into what Pigou say and they turn it into beautiful maths, show, you know, demonstrate rigorously market failure, demonstrate rigorously that government can correct market failure through appropriate Pigovian taxes and subsidies and so on, because that's the traditional story. Well, I thought, I need to write a whole chapter about that for this book on the, on the coaster. And so I went back to write that chapter, and I discovered that, as is so often the case, the old story's wrong. And therefore, so is that three pages of the hesitant hand. Um, what I discovered specifically is that if you look at the economics literature, there is no Pigovian tradition between Pigou and Coase. So even though you know, Coase and Buchanan and others writing on externalities in the 60s were, were ripping on this Pigovian tradition as utterly wrong-headed and all that, well, there may have been one you know, in departmental common rooms and uh, you know, perhaps even in, in the policy realm, there isn't any Pigovian tradition of any significance on evidence in the economics literature. And so then I decided, well, this is more than just a you know, sort of filler chapter to set the stage for Coase. I think there's actually a paper here 
if we can sort of document that there is no such tradition, and more importantly, figure out what happened. What happened between Pagu 1912-1920, Welcome Welfare 1912, and the much more well-known and widely selling, even though in many ways very similar book, The Economics of Welfare, the first edition of which was in 1920. So that's really um, what this, this, this paper is. So I guess I've already, already given you the, 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 the top part of this. So what, what's really, what really goes on between Pigou and, and so this, you'll, you'll hardly hear me mention the Coast Theorem at all in this talk, for those of you who know me well because it doesn't come into the story at all, except right at the end. Um, what, what really happened was, A, sort of nothing for a long time, for a period of a little over 30 years. And then when economists, when economists did talk about them, when there was something, and the something's only five or six or eight mentions, um, it's, it's very unclear. It's, I, I use the word muddle. Uh, a lot in the paper. So they, they disappeared. When economists started to talk about them, or in the rare instances they did talk about them, what was meant by what we call today externalities is, is incredibly unclear. And until we get into the early to mid-60s, and then they reappear again, and in two different forms, um, only one of which is at all you know tightly tied to what really concern Pigou. And so then we get into why, and there are, uh, the, the explanation for all of this sort of death and rebirth has to do with, with factors both internal and external to the economics profession or to, to economic analysis problem. Okay, so the backstory. Um, the origins of externality analysis lie in, one could argue multiple if you want. Um, but, but really, in, in a significant way, in, in Mill 48, and then in Sidgwick, uh, his Principles of Political Economy, that's the third edition, 1901. The first edition was 1887, maybe. I can't remember off the, off the top of my head. But what Mill and Sidgwick are talking about is real stuff. Okay? That is, they are concerned that there are problems with Adam Smith's invisible hand. Okay? Impediments to the working of the invisible hand that supposedly Smith you know, had said worked so wonderfully, but probably more importantly, people after Smith uh, were arguing worked so wonderfully. And Mandeville said, no, that's not true. Looking around the world, at, you know, around London, at emerging industrial slums and all the other things going on, you know, sanitation issues, health, you know, for, for pollution, um, you know, lighting, public, what we today call public goods of various sorts, Things weren't working terribly well, and it, that is, there was what we today would call market failure of various types, or invisible hand failure of, of various types, and perhaps there's a role for government to step in, although Mill was of, of multiple minds on that. Sidgwick took things a step further. Um, I lay all this out in, in that book that has it at hand uh, from, from 2009. Uh, expanded even further the, the range of categories where the market fails to work right. Slightly more optimistic than Mill about the role of government. Uh, and, and all of this was built on the idea of A, uh, wealth maximization, if you want to call it that, I mean, growing the wealth of the nation, like Smith's Invisible Hand said, but also they argued on larger utilitarian grounds, what's good for society as a whole in a utilitarian sense, okay? And so that's the background to Pigou, because what Pigou's analysis of externalities actually is, 
is a conversion of Sidgwick's market failure analysis into a Marshallian analytical framework. Okay? You find relatively little about externalities sort of conceptually in Pigou that wasn't already present in Sidgwick's discussion, and Pigou was a fairly careful student of Sidgwick's analysis. This is, this is not to minimize Pigou, but just to say that, that, that what Pigou was dealing with was stuff that bright economic minds have been talking about for a while. And, and what's central to all of this is that these are real social problems. And so, well, of course, externalities are real social problems, like pollution, but you know, if you haven't read the paper, stay with me. Uh, they're real social problems. Now, what do those real social problems cause? Well, for Pigou, uh, as, as you know, if you've read your Pigou at all, they cause divergences between private and social net products. Today we call them between uh, you know, private and social benefits and costs because the actions of one agent spill over positively or negatively on to other agents. And so the invisible hand doesn't work its magic either in maximizing the national dividend, which was Pigou's workable proxy for welfare, or maximize welfare more broadly conceived, uh, bringing in principles like equality and so on, uh, that were part of Pigou's sort of conceptual broader welfare measures that he sort of pushes to the side uh, after the, the, the early chapters of, of, of the economics of welfare, arguing that the, basically the national dividend is a good proxy for these other measures. And because then the market doesn't work so well to deal with these things, as Pigou says, certain specific acts of interference, that is, regulation, tax, subsidy type remedies, may increase the national dividend. That is, the scope for positive effects of government on the system rather than negative, as, as so many of his predecessors had, had, had seen. Now, what are these divergences? Pigou breaks them down into three categories. Okay? The first is uh, a failure of agents to invest where the return to society is, the net return to society is positive, but the return to themselves may not be. And he uses land tenancy as, as, as the primary example. The tenant has no incentive to invest in the land because the tenant doesn't own the land. If he leaves to move on to another plot of land, the improvements stay with the landowner. So one category of divergence. The second one is the one that sort of forms the basis for the modern theory of externalities, which is what this paper is really all about, although the first leads into that too, where you've got a situation where one person engaging in an act imposes benefits or costs on other people not directly necessarily involved in the situation. Right? And the problem, as Pigou says, is there's no way to enforce you know, the positive or negative sort of compensation payments that would go along with that, that would allow private and social costs and benefits to be equal. So we'll just call this sort of modern externalities. And then finally, increasing uh, and decreasing returns in production. Okay? Those are the three categories of divergence that Pigou identifies in his analysis. <coughs> now, what's the issue with these, or, or what are they? Okay? The, the issue, of course, is that they cause these divergences between private and social net products thereby failing to allow the national dividend to be maximized, this sounds sort of like modern welfare economics. Right? And it is, in certain ways. 
But what's Begun talking about? He's not, he's not talking about analytical categories. Okay? He's talking about real stuff. And he gives lots and lots of examples of what we today would call positive uh, externalities and negative externalities and the, and the reasons for them. And these are the sorts of things that Pagu observed causing difficulties for various classes of society, sometimes for society as a whole, because of what one might call the unfettered operation of a market system. The system simply doesn't work right. So what do we do? Well, these are real problems. They demand real solutions. Okay. I have to mention the Coase theorem here. Right? Coase was not the first person to propose that externality type problems can be solved via negotiation. Right? In spite of his staunch dislike for Pigou for reasons that have never been entirely clear to me, um, Coase failed to realize that Pigou, like him, said negotiation might actually be possible. In fact, Pigou gives negotiation a little more credence than those. Pigou gives more credence to it than his coast. Pigou argues that the land tenancy situations in particular are amenable to negotiation, that contracts between landlords and tenants can actually be written to internalize these external effects to use the modern lingo. But for everything else, he says, not, not. <coughs> but then here's our standard Pigouvian uh, solutions, right? State action to uh, remove the divergences through extraordinary encouragements or extraordinary restraints, that is, subsidies uh, in situations of positive externality and taxes in situations uh, of negative externality, but those might not all might not work some of the time either. And so regulatory measures may be in order. Okay? The, the point for Pigou is that this is these things are only going to be resolved to the benefit of society if this, as he called it, collective authority of wider reach, says the state, steps in to do something about the problem. Okay? And he argued there's a prima facie case for such intervention. Okay? But in reality, Pigou is not as hot for state action as, as some people like to believe, particularly in the Coast Buchanan, Virginia, Chicago crowd, if you actually read Pigou, um, he, he, he in, in the economics of welfare, lists certain problems associated with state action that sound a whole lot like what we today would call public choice problems. In, a, in another little book, Economics in Practice, which uh, is based on a series of lectures here and at Cambridge in 1934-35, Pigou is even more hesitant about the prospects for state action, recognizing, again, the various problems that we today would call public choicey uh, sort of things. Okay, so that's what Pigou had to say. Okay? And so what happened after Pigou? Well, again, the standard view that I laid out for you at the start of the talk, that is that Pigou had shown that we've got market failures of various types all over the place, that government should step in and solve the problem, and his disciples, so to speak, came along and put that all in nice mathematical form, showed in determinate fashion these optimal solutions that were possible through government intervention that has demonstrated formally the reality of market failure and the ability of government to solve the problem. Uh, but then 
the question sort of answers itself based on what I said. Is this really what went on? And the answer, as it turns out, is in fact, it is not. What happened? Well, as I said at the beginning, externalities basically disappeared from the economics literature after Pigou. And again, when I say externalities, I'm talking about externalities, we think of them now. Okay, the increasing and decreasing returns, which were one uh, thread of Pigou's discussion of internal and external economies, diseconomies, they are all over the literature. Okay? Particularly the literature on international trade and development in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. That didn't disappear at all. But the, the piece of Pigou's stuff that we call externalities, those, those, those problems, uh, by and large, gone. What do we find in the journal literature? Well, here it is. If you can, this, that takes us up to 1950. There's a couple articles, I don't know why I don't have them on here. Um, I guess because uh, when, when externalities reappear again. But that's what you've got between 1920 and 1950. If you can find another one, let me know, because I haven't been able to, and I've been looking for three years. That's what there is. The welfare economics treatises of the period, well, this isn't the, yeah. These are the ones that are out there and that, that mention them. As Pigou does in his welfare economics treatise. But the mentions are, actually, Lerner never mentions any of them. The others just mention them in passing. All these treatises on welfare economics ignore entirely the issue of externalities, subjecting them to no analysis whatsoever. A Spartan treatment, if indeed they are treated at all. It's very weird to spend five pages of a paper documenting that nothing exists. <laughs> Why does it matter that nothing exists? Well, that's what we're going to try and get to. Okay, so we've got we've got minimal mentions. When they're mentioned, what's talked about? Well, of course, increasing and decreasing returns, and those are all over the place in the huge other literature. But in those in, in the, the literature I mentioned here that mention you know the, the type of externalities that, that concern us today, um, increasing and decreasing returns are also part of the discussion. Right? Featuring more prominently than anything else are bevel effects. Interconsumer envy sort of things. I use the term the, the term Babylon effects appeared a little bit in the literature, but I just use it as a, a label that we, we all understand. The conspicuous consumption and status emulation sort of stuff uh, that that Babylon talked about. Pollution is mentioned. Oh, there we go. There's the phenomenon. But the pollution that's mentioned is always one of two things. Occasionally, it's the factory. That poor suit, not suit, soot, poor soot on the housewife's laundry hanging out in the yard next door. Okay? There is no doubt that this happened in the 1800s and the 1900s. Okay, but this is this is a canned example. Okay? The other examples that you see, and this is the more common one, are the chemical plant polluting the river and killing the farmers' crops. Okay? That is another canned example. There, there's no analysis of the social problem of pollution. There's no reflection of pollution as being any serious issue. There's just little canned examples being offered that, oh, well, this could happen. Okay? And then you've got a, a occasional mention of common pool 
for resource overuse problems. But all these mentions are past. In fact, so empty is the literature that in 1945, between 1945 and 1952, as these, let me give you back here, as these treatises on welfare economics, and there wasn't much after Pigou until the early 1940s, as these treatises on welfare economics are being published, and the reviews are coming out, you see economists, and I only list two of them here, there are others, right? the economists reviewing these welfare economics treatises calling out the authors for failing to deal in any significant way with external effects of any sort, including the increasing and decreasing returns, but again, a particular import for us, uh, externalities. Okay? Meet on Lerner, uh, accuses Lerner of ignoring a basic, if not the basic problem of the welfare economist, that is, Remember, learners in the economics of control is attempting to make the case, in part at least, that a socialist system can mimic a perfectly competitive system, right? And, and, and engaging in a lot of competitive equilibrium analysis in light of that, and Mead says, if you're going to ignore these external effects of, of all these sorts, including, again, what we today call externalities, you haven't shown us anything, because they're endemic to the system. In 1952, Baumol, right? Uh, accuses these writers on welfare economics of treating externalities as, quote, freakish exceptions, unquote, uh, which he says makes economists, he's basically playing the ideology card here, makes economists defenders of the existing order. Right? In 48, he reviewed Samuelson's foundations and took Samuelson to task for that massive welfare economics chapter in there that includes no discussion of external effects. And it, it, it's, the, the funny thing about this is, and it's, it's just tucked away in a footnote because I didn't think I should make enough of it to sort of stick it in the, the, the text of the paper, but there are as many mentions of externalities in book reviews as there are in the, in, in the rest of the literature. Certain of the older timers in the room at least will recognize that there's a commonality between these two individuals in this time period, right? I'll come back to that. Maybe. I can say something now. Okay. Meet a Baumol or Beauvoir at LSC, right? Meet came later than that. He wasn't at LSC at that point. He was. Meet came a little later. Baumol was Robin's student, right? What? Baumol was Robin's student. Okay. Yeah. The other person that's going to show up here is Mint in just a bit. Also Robin's student, right? That is. He was an undergraduate from 39 to 45. Yes, and he wrote his. I mean, his PhD thesis is on welfare economics. Right? That was the, the the book that he ended up publishing on the subject. That is, it turns out that the some of the only people in Britain who were talking about externalities were the LSE people, which is just a little bit weird, but it turns out Robbins was talking about externalities. He taught Pigou's economics of welfare in his theory of economic policy class. Um, and that may be a link I, I, I don't know, so that's why that's just tucked away in a footnote, too. But there is sort of an interesting LSE connection here. Okay, so enough of the fact that there is nothing there. And we spent 15 minutes talking about the fact of nothing. Right? So when they were talked about, how were they discussed? And this is the, what, 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 what I like to call the model. Okay? 
And the, the issue is that when we move beyond Pigou, the idea that externalities are, are real phenomena, real social problems disappear. Okay? Their, their discussion, the discussion of externalities, takes place for the next 30 years in a completely different context. Specifically, what people grabbed onto from Pigou was that divergence between private and social net product as preventing the attainment of the competitive optimum. Okay? And the beginning of that tradition is Frank Knight's 1924 article, some, some fallacies in the uh, interpretation of private and social cost. Okay? Where does the inefficiency of externalities come from? Well, Pigou talks about it as a problem of the pricing system. Knight carries that on. This imperfection of the pricing system code is actually con 1935. But what the what this 30 years of not talking about externalities consisted of, when people were actually talking about them, was attempting to try to figure out how and why externalities did in fact lead to departures from the competitive optimum. That is, to move away from externalities as a social problem, in some sense, to externalities as simply a, a theoretical category, a conceptual category, uh, an analytical construct that interfered with the attainment of Pareto efficiency in competitive equilibrium analysis. Okay? And so what we see then is this, this series of attempts to untangle Pigou's analysis, which Pigou has sort of lumped all these different things together. I mean, he set out a couple of categories, but how and why are they different? Are there differences within the categories? How do these things contribute to the failure of efficiency? Okay. Well, as respects externalities themselves, we get several different ideas. Knight and Kahn simply said, you know, a failure of the pricing system. But, Okay, how, why, what is it that causes the pricing system to fail? And, and, and beginning in the 40s, but more, more, much more so in the 50s, economists begin to take this up. Okay? Ellison Fellner, a uh, well-known American economist, talked about externalities being due to the, the divorce of scarcity from effective ownership. Right? That is, because, no, to use the modern lingo, because nobody's got property rights over. There's no ownership over certain types of resources, such as the air. People treat them as free goods. And so they are overused, which explains you know, pollution, common pool, other sorts of things. Mead actually, in his paper in the early 50s, the, um, the one that's most famous for the, 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 the beekeeper and the apple uh, orchard, or apple orchard farmer, uh, example, talked about two different types of externalities. Those due to unpaid factors of production, and here I, I, I'm not going to go through the equations unless you really want me to. The point was to throw them up as an example of the formalization that was beginning to take place, but the idea is that the output of good one is impacted by the output of good two. So honey, uh, honey production is a function of how many apple trees the nearby apple orchard owner is growing because, the, and of course this goes both ways, right? Bees, bees get and they give at the same time. Um, but Mead also talked about a second type of externality, what he called atmosphere effects. That's a situation where, for example, if you have a, afforestation is a good example. If, if you have a, a big forest, that forest causes rainfall 
right? It increases, a nice forest increases rainfall. And that helps all the farmers in the surrounding community, right? And that, here's the forest, enters agricultural output in a different way than does the unpaid factory. Right? And again, the nuances of all this don't concern us. The point is simply that the struggle to tease out how these external effects cause deviations from the optimum. I mean, when you, when you put all this into basic welfare analysis, the, the, the marginal social conditions don't add up, to, 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 to put it simply. Okay? And then finally, Skutovsky, writing in 1984, or sorry, 1954, talked about that it's simply a problem of direct interdependence between agents. That is, it's interdependence that's not mediated through the pricing system, and that is really what's at the heart of the problem. Okay? So these are attempting to add some measure of clarification. Nobody's really happy with what anybody else says. And so you get you know, Article 1, response, response to these, and trying to tease things out. And none of it working terribly well. I mean, you, it, it, hindsight is 20-20, right? But you get to the end of these articles, reading them as a modern economist, and we haven't really gotten any, anywhere here. And, but the point is, the people at the time didn't think we'd really gotten anywhere either in understanding why it is that these externalities cause a problem. Skutovsky's analysis is worth mentioning in a little bit of detail. Not so much for the analytics as for his explanation for why maybe it doesn't make any sense to, to, to even worry about these things. And this is where the front half of the title of the paper comes from, the exceptional and unimportant question mark from Skutovsky 54. Skutovsky identifies four different types of, of, of um, external economy slash diseconomy. So he, he expands it from what, what could do it. Okay? specifically uh, because he adds Veblen effects. Okay? And he said Veblen effects are actually incredibly important, and economists should actually pay attention to those in their analysis even though they haven't been. It's time to start changing things. But the second category he points to is producer actions such as pollution, and he says that these are actually exceptional, and that is exceptional in the sense that they're exceptions to the norm. We don't actually see much in the way of pollution problem in the real world, because where we have problems like this, he says, we've got regulations to pretty much take care of it. This is 1954, It's not 1974 after the Clean Air Act in the US and, and, thing, and things like that. So the pollution's are not an issue for Skutovsky. Okay? New inventions, okay? those can, you know, in a development context and so on, those can cause cause spillovers of various sorts, but the patent system takes care of that, he says. And then, in, you know, meat-type producer-producer relations, that can include external economies and diseconomies of various sorts, as well as the, the, the bees and the apple orchard owners and all of that. And he says, again, these are few and exceptional. He said, if these kind of externalities were actually a problem, meat wouldn't have to resort to an example like beekeepers and apple orchard owners. Right? There aren't that many of those in the real world. He's got to go all the way off to this sort of airy fairy bucolic stuff to even be able to give us an example. There's nothing here. Right? So Skutovsky's conclusion then was that external economies uh, and diseconomies are either exceptional and unimportant, that's the categories we care about, or they're important and ubiquitous, but those refer to you know, categories of action that 
don't fall into the modern definition of, of externalities. Okay? So being exceptional and unimportant, Skutowski concludes that these types of external effects here, we don't need to pay any attention to as economists. We can, we're justified, actually, in ignoring them. So it makes sense, in fact, that there's no literature here. Okay? The last pieces of the theoretical literature prior to Coase came from, from Francis Bayer. Um, in two articles, 1957 and 1958, both actually derived from his 1956 uh, MIT PhD thesis, where it, it, which actually was the thesis on growth and development. Okay, so even though talking about externalities like pollution, all of this is still seen as very much part of uh, or seen within a growth and development context. And Bader's thesis and the articles that came from it, and I've got Bader's thesis. Um, it was, I can't remember where I got it, if I was able to download it or he sent it to me, but anyway, uh, one, one way or another, I've got it. Uh, Bader's thesis, the two of the, the three main chapters, are about trying to bring some clarity to this whole issue of externalities and, in particular, uh, market failure in general and externalities in particular. And it's actually Bader, probably, who coined the term market failure. Okay? There are two, the first time it appears in the literature is 1958, and it appears in two different articles, one by Paul Samuelson and one by Bader. Right? Um, so the professor and the student, the question is, who's the chicken and who's the egg, right? Um, Samuelson used it in a way not at all really related to what we consider externalities today. He wasn't talking about this sort of stuff. Um, and it's also in Bader's thesis in 56. So my guess is that well, Bader was the first one to write it down. I know that. Um, I don't know if he picked it up from Samuelson uh, or not. And I actually asked him that in an email, and he didn't seem to remember. Um, but, but anyway, this is where the term externality actually uh, enters the literature. Okay? Um, and, and what's nice about Bader is that he is really explicit about the, the sorts of things that I've been talking about here. That is, that what, what really matters about externalities is not real-world phenomena. To, to economists, what really matters is their role as an analytical category and the extent to which they matter uh, in, in, in that sense. Okay? Um, and, and so here he's talking about the general category of market failure, okay? uh, but the desirability of an activity is evaluated relative to the solution of some explicit or implied maximum welfare problem. <clears throat> that is, it's all about the model. I'm getting you there. It's all about the model. Okay? And, and so what Bader's doing here is reinforcing the location of this externality concept then in the theory of competitive equilibrium, a literature which he argues is rich, but going back to what I said about the muddle, very confusing. All right. So Bayer breaks market failures down into uh, three categories. And he's, he uses the term market failure and externality uh, interchangeably, actually. Um, so he, well, he gave us the, he may have given us the term, he didn't give us its more, more narrow modern uh, meaning. He talks about three types of externalities. Ownership externalities, which captures pretty much all the stuff we talk about under the heading of externalities today. The increasing and decreasing returns issues, which he calls technical externalities. 
And again, I mean, other people have put the technical externalities label on this because you've got you know, this thing physically affecting that thing. So there's lots of, of, of tangle in the literature too. And then what he calls public good externalities, citing his mentor, uh, Paul Samuelson, and the wonderful explication Samuelson gave in the pure theory of, pu of public expenditure uh, a, a couple of years before. And he recognizes that these things shade into each other. I mean, obviously, well, we, we know this as modern economists, right? By one definition, at least public goods are just one particular form of, of positive externality. But, um, you know, smoke pollution with the air, public good is the air, that kind of thing. They, they bleed into one another. And so for, for um, Bader, these things were difficult to tease out. All right. So enough about, about the literature. Let's see if we can explain what happened. Where did the lacuna come from? That is, why did economists quit talking about these things? Why did they just disappear when they've been around for a very long time? And the best answer that that one can give from the, that, that is that one, one can give based upon the literature itself is that they were considered empirically unimportant. That is, that the stuff just plain didn't matter. Now, looking at it from the perspective of today, we'd say, well, that's nuts. Right? Because people are, you know, bonkers about pollution today, and in some ways we have far less of it than we had back then. Right? Now, we didn't have China as an industrialized nation back then. We think about Britain and the U.S. and factories in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s. You know, they, they were belching smoke like crazy with basically no filtration at all. Large-scale air pollution... Was, was, was a huge problem, but yet economists didn't see it that way. There's just simply no discussion of it at all as, as a real problem, and there's plenty of, in, in virtually every one of the authors whose names appeared on any one of these slides, you can find some mention of, this doesn't really matter. It's just not that big a deal. And so that justifies them excluding them from the analysis, particularly when the analysis is analysis of the operation of a competitive market system. Strip away the stuff that doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. Why else? Well, external factors. This is one that Backhouse suggested to me. So if you like it, you can give him credit. If you don't like it, you can send him an email. He's <laughs> up in Mulder writing about Samuelson today. He's read the paper five times. He didn't need to come give the talk. There's a, there's actually some other really important stuff going on in the late 20s, 30s, 40s, dealing with the Great Depression, war and time planning. Economists were very preoccupied with these sorts of things. And I think that is in part true. On the other hand, you know, economists found plenty of time to write about various, you know, sort of things that one might call larger or smaller forms of theoretical minutia, you know, Viner figuring out that the cost curve is the envelope, the long-run curve of the short-run curves rather than going through the minimum points and, you know, things like that. It's not like economists gave up abstract theorizing or, or other types of, you know, real-world problems besides just the Great Depression War. There's, you know, this huge literature on development and growth, for example. And yes, some of that was tied to the Great Depression, but a whole lot of it wasn't. It was about larger, you know, what we today might call you know, third or fourth world problems 
of economic growth. But there's no question that that probably factored in. Right? Pollution is a relatively small social problem when you're in the midst of the Great Depression or the, the whole world is blowing itself up. Internally, things were also changing. Internal imperfection. You can hang some of this on Robbins, uh, not all of it, um, certainly, but 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 some of it. That is that, that economics had been and, and not because Robbins wasn't prescribing, at least well, he would say he was prescribing, he was describing, and to the extent he was describing, economics was changing. That's why he wrote you know, part part of this is he felt that the you know old definitions of economics didn't describe what economists did anymore. I think he also felt that old definitions of economics didn't describe what economists should do anymore. Right? But between the fact that economists were beginning to do some things differently, and the fact that people read Robbins and you know increased the extent to which they did things differently, economic analysis was evolved to a science of. And this is not you know a move from Alfred Marshall to Gary Becker instantaneously, right? There's this this long slow move. Encompassing the analysis of choice under conditions of scarcity. There's also, in part due to Robbins, a move away from various forms of normative analysis. That is, welfare economics became less prescriptive after Robbins' essay than it had been before. There is a lot of pious moralizing in Pagu. The re some of the reasons for which you get a good sense for in Kumikawa's new biography of Pigou. Some of it was dressed up very neatly as, as analytics, but Pigou made no bones about his more influenced ethical precepts. Right? Economics was becoming a static modeling science. The socialist calculation debate was a part of this. Let us narrow down, hammer down, narrow down, nail down the characteristics of a competitive system and its efficiency properties for one group to demonstrate the efficacy of the competitive system, for another group to help demonstrate that a socialist system can replicate the propensities of a competitive market system. And within all of this, there was a strong feeling, and you see it in, in uh, Mel Rader's Welfare Economics Treatise, uh, in Little's book, in Mint's book, in Bader's analysis, that if we build externalities cause a problem, if we build them into the model, it messes up the analysis. It reduces the precision. It, it, it greatly weakens what we can do with our models. And so, given that they're empirically unimportant, we're justified in leaving them out. Uh, I'm not one who believes in leaving quotes off of slides, but I am one who believes in not reading the quotes on the slides. Um, so I will let you read, I'm going to give you two. First from Mint, um, on, he, he laid a lot of this on economists' preoccupations with Pareto optimality. If you don't know Mint's book, it is a, a, a treatise on welfare economics with sort of an asterisk next to it. That is, it's, it's a history of welfare theories up to the time that he wrote, okay, and a critical history. He's not doing so much, what's it, what's it, it's called theories of welfare economics, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he's not so much laying out a new welfare theory as he is surveying the turf, okay, and, and critically, in, in the, critically in every sense, including in the, uh, you know, I'm pretty dissatisfied with, you know, 
much of what's going on out there since. Okay? And this preoccupation with Pareto-Optimality and, and the optimalities of a competitive system really got in Mint's crawl. Right? He understood that it was important. Right? And he calls it a great achievement. He says, in fact, it's even necessary because we can't understand the, devi the effects of deviations from the competitive optimum unless we understand what the optimum is actually like. But the problem, he said, is that economists stopped at that point and never actually began to probe the deviations. Okay? And then secondly, and, and perhaps even better, uh, uh, Bader, uh, whose justifications for ruling, justification for ruling out externalities uh, in 57 is, is there. And, and the point of all of this is that for economists, it was much more important to have an elegant theory than to have a realistic theory. Now, that's been true of economists for all time, right? But the, 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 the analysis of external effects was seen as mucking up the theorizing, and so it was legitimate to, in fact, leave them out. Almost done. Okay. Why did externalities show up again? Well, they showed up again in two ways. First, beginning in the early 50s with Mead, who we've already mentioned, you know, a little bit with, with Mead, with Skitovsky, uh, with Bader. Right? They started to, that's where the conversation starts again, but it's within that competitive maximizing process. Why? Well, because they're, Mead basically pointed it out in his review of um, Lerner's book. It's nice to explore the properties of competitive equilibrium, but we need to understand why it is that externalities cause inefficiency. Why, why does that happen? And so they began to work that out with, 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 with nice mathematics that show the divergences then between private and social costs and why the conditions for the optimum are not satisfied. But that's basically the end of the story. That is, there's no discussion of real externality problems. There's almost no attention to remedies. Okay? Mead talks a little bit about taxes, right? but only as a means to, okay, we could use a tax to, if we specified it properly, you know, get the marginal conditions necessary for the optimum. Right? Other than that, basically no attention to remedies for externalities at all. Okay? That is, it's a theoretical problem that needs solving, not a real-world problem. Okay. So that's one branch of the rebirth, okay. dealing with a problem in competitive equilibrium analysis. Okay. Now back to Pigou. Okay. The other rebirth of externalities. Okay. That is, externalities in the mill sits with Pigou says, uh, what, what Papa Dreo has got a, a nice book on the history of externalities, but it's, uh, there are some problems with it that we don't need to get into, into those here. I talked about that in the, in, in the paper. But the he calls it the phenomenological approach to externalities. That is, externalities is real, real, real social problems. Okay? That begins in the mid 1950s. Okay? Why? The argument here is because of real world problems. Okay? It wasn't that people you know, looked at Mead and looked at Skitovsky and, and Bader's analysis. Oh yeah, now let's take this and apply it to real world problems. In fact, the discussions of externalities in the literature in the early days of the, of, of the new phenomenological discussion didn't even have much to do 
with or, or reference this competitive markets externality literature at all. But the 50s, latter half of the 50s, we're seeing problems with pollution that are being recognized as real social problems, urbanization, congestion, all of those, all of those sorts of things. Um, the, the stuff, the kind of things that, that Beatrice Sherrier has been talking about as sort of launching the birth of applied economics in the 1970s. Okay? Um, but some of those things actually go back to the 1950s. Uh, President Truman, right after the Second World War, no, sorry, President Truman in the early 1950s, right after the Korean conflict, not war, it wasn't a war. Really, it wasn't. People were shooting and bombing, but there was no war. Okay? Established the Materials Policy Commission. Okay? The, the deal with the Materials Policy Commission was that it was a response to this perception in the U.S. that we were running out of stuff that we didn't have enough raw materials, resources to run the war machine, uh, operate the economy. There were related concerns with environmental problems, and it had a lot of fingers to it. Okay? But out of the Materials Policy Commission came a recommendation for the foundation of an institute by the government that would look into environmental and study carefully with economists and others environmental and natural resource problems. Okay? The U.S. government didn't end up doing much to fund that. The Ford Foundation did. Uh, but that, that, that institute that was founded was Resources for the Future. Um, the first environmental economics think tank in the U.S., at least perhaps in the world, I don't, I, but I don't know, like most Americans, I don't know what was going on elsewhere in the world at that time. So in the, in the second half of the 1950s, Resources for the Future is founded, and they bring together a bunch of people who we today would call environmental economists. But of course, there was no environmental economics back then. There were economists studying natural resources and environmental issues. Um, the, the stuff was being published in places like the Journal of Farm Economics. Uh, um, now remember, youngsters um, in the room, there weren't very many economics journals back then. I mean, a dozen maybe, okay? Published in English, you know, AR, QJE, EJ, uh, QJE, and then you know, Southern Economic Journal and you know, a, a few other applied sorts of journals in the, in the 1950s. So, um, but, but the Journal of Farm Economics, so it wasn't a totally backwater thing, but it wasn't something every economist had on his or her shelf. But in the early 1960s, the journal Land Economics, which had been running for several decades, but was focused on agricultural and natural resource issues, shifted gears to begin emphasizing environmental economics literature. Uh, the Natural Resources Journal, which is a law journal, sort of, but has always published a lot of economic stuff. It was an early outlet for the environmental economics literature because it took it a while to get serious inroads in AER, QJE, EJ uh, type of journals. Uh, the Natural Resources Journal uh, was also founded during this period. So there's, there's outside stuff We've got problems as a society, economists responding to those problems um, in various ways to begin the analysis of, of pollution problems. And that is, the idea that they're exceptional and unimportant begins to fade away, although it happens only slowly over time. Environmental economics in the US began to accelerate in the 1960s, but it's really only the 1970s that the field really began to take off, a lot of that due to the debate surrounding the Clean Air Act and so on in, 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 the, early 19, in, in the early 1970s. So 
he, but economists beginning to work on applied social problems for various reasons um, feeds into all of this. And notably, with this then comes, once again, for really the first time since Pigou, the discussion of remedies. That is, what it is that we ought to do about these environmental problems. And, the, and some, of the, some of this was couched in uh, you know, the language of marginal equivalences and all of that. But a good share of it was not. It was simply, there's bad stuff happening, and we need to make it less. Okay? And we can make it not, not you know, marginal social benefit equals marginal social cost, but we need to reduce this stuff. How do we do it? Well, interestingly, there's no Pigopian tradition here either. Because if you look at this literature that does begin to discuss remedies, you see all over the place. Of course, there's plenty. The starting point's always Pigou's bounties and tasks. Right? But there was an enormous amount of skepticism expressed about whether these were feasible. Right? Whether the government can actually figure out how to levy appropriate size taxes and subsidies, usually for the negatives of taxes, of course, levy the taxes appropriate to achieve the desired reductions. Sometimes, you know, that Q star efficient level, sometimes just we need a big reduction. There wasn't any great confidence that, that, that taxes would work well. There was a lot of discussion of single ownership. Now, obviously not for air pollution, but for common pool resource problems, fishery depletion, and so on. Um, that was first proposed by Knight in 24. Um, uh, Scott Gordon, uh, in, in the mid-50s, wrote his famous analysis of the common pool problem and talked about this, and that really spurred uh, uh, are spurred a uh, 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 big literature, pluses and minuses, and so on. There's also plenty of discussion of negotiated solutions to externality problems. It wasn't just Pigou who was before Coase, but all of these characters here uh, before Coase as well. Again, those of you who are from the present school will recognize this guy, uh, who in a 1957 book actually laid out a, a negotiation solution roughly identical to what Coase put down in 1959-60, uh, saying uh, and, and noting in a footnote, yeah, I got the idea from Arnold Plant. Coase's mentor at LSE was Arnold Plant. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, apparently Plant mentioned over coffee in the senior common room. I got that much on the term in a conversation before he, uh, before he passed away uh, a couple of years ago. But anyway, Plant's fingers are are in all this. But the, the upshot is, when remedies did come to be discussed, there was no settled conclusion on how to deal with these problems. So th that is, we, we come to 1960, and what we really have is a whole lot of, when we've got stuff again, it's no longer a whole lot of nothing, it's a whole lot of stuff, but it's still a very unclear situation as to what externalities are. And in fact, even in the 1970s, people were speaking, I mean, people like William Bobble and Wallace Oaks and, and others were trying to nail down me um, what are externalities, you know, as, as an analytical category. There was still great confusion in the literature and no agreement on what to actually do about them. Right? And so, uh, and, and I'll stop here. So, so the upshot of this is, you know, for, for, for where I'm going in, in the larger project, that when Coase wrote the problem of social costs in 1960, that there may have been a Pigopian tradition in the sense that if you ask your garden variety economist, you know, well, how do we deal with externalities? They would, you know, 
they may well have said, well, you know, tax them if they're negative, subsidize them if they're positive, if that doesn't work regularly. Um, but there's no such tradition uh, evidenced any, anywhere in, in literature. And, and so this idea that, that Coase was reacting against this dominant paradigm in economic analysis, and that idea is given to us partly by Coase, uh, also by Buchanan and others, just doesn't seem to stand up. Where we find the Pigovian tradition again is actually not really until after Coase wrote with, with Alan Kinesis' book on uh, the economics of water resources, one of the foundational contributions to environmental economics, you see, see some of that. But it's really with, with, with William Barwell and Wallace Oates and others in the 1970s that the, the, a Pigovian tradition begins to establish itself in the externalities literature and uh, attempt to assert its authority. At the time Coase wrote, the, the whole subject was basically up for grabs. Okay, that's a good place to stop.